Okay, let's take a look at church eschatology. I've so emphasized that eschatology is Jewish. You might think there's none relating to the church, but there is. But it is in context of Jewish eschatology. So the tribulation is Jewish. And this is a main reason why the church does not go into the tribulation. I gave you a little bit of background on that, but there are some things that are predicted concerning the church before the tribulation, so let's take a look at them. They're very few, but they do exist. And one thing that we start off with is not a positive. It goes against the... Uh, not only the post-millennial view, but in large measure, even the amillennial view. Amillennialists will minimize the passages that predict apostasy, the apostasy of the church. In fact, the path of the church, you have a lot of patterns in Israel. It, the church is going to follow the same downward spiral cycles of sin that we talked about as we saw with the nation of Israel. And this is the main prediction during the church age, is there's going to be apostasy. So let's take a look at this idea. And it totally goes against uh, the post-millennial view that says that the church becomes more and more powerful, more and more influential, to the point that we basically bring conversion to the world and influence the world to the point that we can establish the kingdom and then Christ patches on the back, and he gives us a thousand years of righteousness and peace. And the question it asks them is, how are we doing? And the answer is not very well. Instead, we have the very opposite. We have apostasy. So that's Christian, or how should we put it, church eschatology. First event, or not event, but trend, if you will, is apostasy. And there are several passages and several... Words that are used, probably the most common word is aphistemi, and the word is used in a neutral sense or a non-theological sense to refer to just a departure of any kind, just to go away type of thing. For example, when Jesus was tempted in Luke 4.13, it says the, the devil departed from Jesus after the temptation. Just went away. In other words, left him alone. Just a departure. It refers to Anna in a beneficial, positive sense. Anna the prophetess in Luke 2.37, where it says she never left the temple serving night and day with fasting and prayer. So negatively, not leaving, but it's it's the same word. Fistemi, just to depart. So it's used in that non-theological or literal physical sense, and there's several other passages. In fact, the majority of the usages are in that way. Acts 19.9, Paul at Corinth, it's translated New American Standard, withdrew, but you could say departed from those hardened and disobedient. In other words, he just left, took off, departed. But it's also used in a spiritual sense and... Sometimes, well, even in a, it's even used in a spiritual sense in a positive way. For example, Paul prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to depart. In other words, this is a desirable thing that he prayed for, but God denied that. And the usages that are in the negative, 
the primary ones are those that refer to departing from the faith, departing from God. And we have two major ones there, Hebrews 3.12. The writer of Hebrews, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God, or departing from the living God. And then the best-known passage is 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit explicitly says, and here's the clear prediction, clear prophetic statement. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away or depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And the word there is aphistemi, to fall away. There's another word that is translated in the same sense, given the same kind of idea. Apostrepho is to turn away, to turn away from something. And by the way, that, that first one occurs 14 times in the New Testament. This one occurs only 10 times. And one of the passages, 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, and again it's in a context of turning away, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths, referring to the generation within the church age. Are they believers that, I mean, I'm just... I think it's potential that believers can turn away. I mean, I know that you had that in Hebrew 6. Right. Yeah, I think Hebrew 6 is a turning away, and it's specifically, I think, to believers. Yes. So I think it's possible. And there's a third word. In fact, where we get the word apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasia. You can see the similarity. Now, it only occurs two times in the New Testament. In Acts 21.21, and it's used in terms of forsaking or departing from Moses. And then Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you. Notice deception. For it will not come unless the apostasy, and it's translated in the American Center, the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, there's different ways of taking that apostasy. It may refer to a massive turning towards the end of the church age. In other words, he's talking about probably the beginning of a tribulation period. It's not going to come, and Antichrist isn't going to come until this takes place, and until after he is revealed, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So it's translated sometimes apostasy or a departure from something. There's another word that also occurs in contexts four times, apospao, to draw away or to pull away. Paul uses this in Acts 20 where he's warning concerning false teachers. And he says, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples. In other words, to cause them to depart or to fall away from, uh, from the faith in that context. We'll come back to that passage. So those are the major words. There are at least three others. The others are not used necessarily in this spiritual sense of apostasy. So it's not for lack of passages, and it's not for lack of words that describe this condition that the church will experience. 
Probably the best definition that I've seen is a departure from truth that was once professed. That's apostasy. At least professed, and I, be- I think in some cases even believed, but there's a short description. And it's interesting, if you study the passages, they tend to occur at the end of ministries. And what I describe as the last concerns of all of the writers is this issue of apostasy. This is an ever-present danger. It popped up in the first century. It has popped up throughout church age. And it appears that it's going to intensify towards the end. So it's the last concerns. And I just choose that background slide. That's kind of a contemporary massive church that I think is an apostate church. And if you look at it carefully, you can figure out which one. Okay, this is the last concern of Paul. And let's look, look these up. And see, Sheila, I think you're up. Second Timothy 3, why don't you look up that passage. Vivian, look up Acts 20. Hinata, Second Peter 3 there. Mark, why don't you get at least First John. And you can just jot down Revelation 22, 18 through 19. We won't read that one. But that's the last passage of the book of Revelation, last paragraph there. Jude, let's see where, uh, Sheila, you want to come up with Jude again, and Vivian, Hebrews 13.9, Hanada, Matthew 24. And the emphasis that I'm talking about here is these are the last concerns of Paul, the last concerns of Peter, the last concerns of John, Jude, Hebrews, even Jesus. The last book that Paul writes, 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 15. But evil men and imposters will go worse and worse, deceiving deceit. But you must continue in the which you have learned and assured of, and that from childhood have known the holy scriptures, which are able to be wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Okay, notice the last, this is the last book that he writes. In fact, he writes this very close to his death. He anticipates his execution. One of the last chapters in the book, or the last chapter in the book, Chapter 3, his last concern is a departure from the faith. His last message to the Ephesian elders, he met with them at Miletus in Acts 20, and at the heart of what he warns, you got 20, 28. You don't need to read all of those, but read at least, well, I think I've got it. 32. Okay, read it fast. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to do you up to give you the inheritance among all those. So he concludes by encouraging them, you need to stay in the Word. So he's commending them to God and the Word. But be on guard. Savage wolves, false teachers in other words, even from within. These are the Ephesians elders. This is the last contact. And the church that he had most contact with are, are those at Ephesus. And now he's dealing with the leadership, warning them. And it's predictive. Prophetic. Second Peter three, you got that one? This is the last letter that Peter writes, last chapter, close to the end of his book. What is he concerned about? 
So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote, you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures do their own to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Okay, a warning against not be carried away by this error. My version, unprincipled men, but stand firm. In other words, be steadfast. So Peter's last concern, that's at the very end of his last letter. What about John? One of the last letters he writes, 1 John 2, 18 and 19, Mark. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. And if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so that it would be shown that they were not of us. Concern about false Christs, antichrists. I don't have the second letter there, but this is the second to the last letter that he writes. Second John, verses 7 through 10. I won't read the whole verses, but many, he says, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh, and then he describes them. It's a warning. And that's a very letter? short letter. Second John 7 through 10, you could write there. Then the last chapter, last paragraph, he's talking about distorting the word, taking away from the book of Revelation. This is what false teachers do. Or changing it, revising it, tampering with it. So the last concern of John, Jude is one of the last, well, it's one of the last books of the Bible, written late in church history. What is he concerned about? You get that one? I do. Oh. Beloved, while I was very diligent concerning our comments, I found it necessary for all things. For certain men have crept in who long ago were marked out for ungodly for God and denying for God. Verse 3 indicates that he was going to write something else. In other words, he sat down and probably had some ideas and the Spirit moved him to deal with false teaching. And that's the essence of the rest of the, the letter. The little one chapter letter in Jude. Skipped over you, I guess, huh? Yeah. We'll come back to you. It's a miracle. Sorry about that. <laughs> Hebrews 13.9, and this also is written before 70 A.D., late, and this is the last chapter of the writer of Hebrews. Verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teeth, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not been. A warning, don't be carried away by strange teachings. Jesus himself, this is three days before his crucifixion. He writes the Olivet Discourse. And there are several passages, but just 34 and 35. He's already warned about false prophets. He's warned about false teachers. And notice towards the end of the Olivet Discourse, 34 and 35. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will, will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His words are not, they're going to endure. And this is in a context after warning about false doctrine, false teacher. 
So the last concerns of virtually all the writers, Paul, Peter, John, Jude, writer of Hebrews, Jesus himself, false doctrine, and the issue of apostasy. What are the characteristics? Well, and I'm just going to give you the scriptures on this. You can jot them down and check them out. The false teachers and apostasy involves, obviously, Scripture itself. Scripture as it is at the heart. Departing from the Word, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Jude 3, you can include that. So all false teaching will deny in some way the accurate teaching of Scripture. There's a denial of Scripture. There's a denial of the Trinity itself. And you can use 1 John 2. 2 through 23 there, where it speaks of Christ and the Father. Denial of God in general, 2 Timothy 3, 4 and 5. A denial of the Incarnation, that's 1 John 2, 18. And you could also include 2, 22, 4, 1 John 4, 3. We read the Second Peter, 2 Peter 3, 4 passage, Mockers of the Second Coming. Second coming is mocked or denied. There's a few passages that refer to denying or departing from the faith, which is biblical teaching or you might say sound doctrine. That would be 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. We read that one, uh, verse 1 there. Also Jude 3, you can include. And in the same context, verses 3 and 4, 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, sound doctrine, sound teaching, and you can use that one for scripture as well, sound doctrine. A godly life, departure from godly life. And, and by the way, false teachers oftentimes are immoral people. And Paul includes that in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. A long description of not only immoral life, but just a unholy life. Denial of Christian liberty. This was common in the first century amongst the Judaizers, but it would be common as, as well later, 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Denial of authority and the undermining of authority, 2 Second Timothy 3, 4, where it talks about disobedient to parents. So you can broaden that. So those are the characteristics. What was right before authority? Christian liberty. Could you repeat the, uh, um, the references for faith? Denial, uh, well... Departing from the faith is 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. And you can also put Jude 3, where he specifically uses that phrase. There's a lot of biblical examples. You could start with Satan himself. He's described as a cherub, as a, in a right standing before God, holy even. But he departs. And you would include, along with Satan, angelic creatures, Jude 6, verse 6, as the angels who did not keep their position of authority, but abandoned their their own home. These he has kept in darkness, etc., etc. But they abandoned, or departed, or apostatized, Satan and angels. Israel, clear example of apostasy, going into idolatry and eventually sent into exile and captivity. A lot of the kings, they departed from the word of God. Jeroboam, specifically, it mentions departing. Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon, Amaziah from Judah. All of those are kings of Judah that departed. And all of the kings of Israel were evil kings. You could see in the first century, Pharisees are an example 
or they rejected the Messiah. They knew the scriptures, so they would have denied Jesus as Messiah. Some disciples, some are even mentioned by name. We have Hymenaeus and Alexander specifically mentioned in 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. 1 Timothy 1, 19 through, and 20. Demas, 2 Timothy 4:10. You could include one of the 12, Judas. He knew the truth. He heard every sermon of Jesus. He's described as a devil. So he knew the truth, departed from it, abandoned it, forsook it. And probably the ultimate one is Antichrist himself. These are the most vivid examples in Scripture. There's a lot of contemporary examples in our culture today. Probably the most visible is the whole liberal church, mm-hmm. totally in, into apostasy. has abandoned Scripture altogether in our day. started by undermining the book of Genesis, progressed to other passages or other books after Genesis to the point that today scripture is not used and undermined, its authority is totally undermined in liberal churches. Mm-hmm. You also see a moral abandonment of biblical principles. A new spirituality has arisen that denies scripture. And you can see this in the political realm as well. Mm-hmm. So a moral departure from standards, right and wrong, biblical teaching. To the point that today there are heresies in theology that result from abandoning a proper hermeneutic. And what I'm getting at here is even within good churches, a neglect and a departure from good, solid doctrine. And a movement away from sound doctrinal teaching as well. It's going to lead to uh, ultimate apostasy. The occult is popular in our culture. This is an overt denial of the truth. It's demonic. Doctrines of demons are alive today, not just first century. So not a pretty picture, but this is what Scripture predicts, and we're even seeing that right before our very eyes today. Secondly, the Bible speaks in terms of, and this is not a real specific prophecy, but it also kind of gives the alternative and anticipates that there'll be a faithful remnant in the midst of this apostasy. God maintained a faithful remnant in Old Testament times and will, I think, maintain a faithful remnant throughout the church age. And the encouragement of all of those passages that we looked at as the final concern was that believers remain faithful, faithful to God. So we can look at that. Romans 11.5, it says in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And I think he's referring to a Jewish, but more particularly a non-Jewish remnant, in other words, faithful believers. So a faithful remnant, and there's obviously hundreds of passages that encourage us along the line of faithfulness. And along that, kind of included in this faithful remnant, it's not going to be under easy conditions, there's going to be persecution. And there's lots of passages that predict persecution, even using the same word that is translated tribulation. But this is more general. This is not the specific tribulation that we see as Jewish. 
And we see this all around us today. In fact, all Islamic countries are persecuting, martyring, beheading believers. So the persecution is most intense in Islamic countries today. There was a, I just read an article, ISIS terrorists or ISIS murderer made a quote. He said, Christians are our favorite target. And it probably brings them pleasure, yeah. Yeah. Come right out of the public and say, Christians are our favorite. Absolutely. And second or equally Jewish people. Yes. Oh, just, we were talking about Buddhism, but, you know, I mean, everything has kind of been put into the, into um, the New Age movement. And, you know, I mean, it just incorporates everything, a lot of stuff, you know, demonic things and Eastern religion and all that, but the biggest unifying factor is the destruction. Is that right? In Buddhism? They're waiting, like when you think of the, no, no, not Buddhism, but the New Age movement. Oh, New Age movement. You know, which incorporates a lot of Eastern Eastern religion and stuff, but the, you know, the, when you think about the age of Aquarius, that they're waiting for this guy called Lord Maitreya, who's going to raise up this huge one-mind consciousness, and part of that will be the destruction of Christians. Because they're so narrow-minded. I guess. I guess. Any, because yeah. they're anti this. Yeah, thing, so. exactly. I just, there's, yeah. it's embedded into the New Age. Exactly. So all Islamic countries, this is where persecution is most intense, even amongst mm-hmm. their own, because mm-hmm. they will kill their own if they convert to Christianity. All communist countries, represented by the second photo there, Moscow, all communist countries, but not exclusively Russia, but China. There's a lot of persecution in China. All communist countries. North Korea, many Roman Catholic-dominated areas. South America, Mexico, Central America, a lot of persecution. Every year that I used to, I haven't gone in several years, over a decade now, but I used to go down to Mexico City and do seminars down there. And almost every year they give me a report of, you know, Christians that were persecuted, that were suffering as a result of leaders within the Catholic Church. And I'm sure that it is probably intensified rather than lessened persecution. So those are the main sources today in our culture. Jesus predicts this and warns. You might jot down a few of these. You're probably familiar with these. John 16:33. This is in the upper room. These. This is the last words of Jesus. He not only is concerned about apostasy, but also persecution. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. And he uses the word that is translated tribulation, referring to that unique tribulation. Then he encourages, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So he is our resource. Second Peter four twelve through 14 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, first century, which it comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. It's not strained. It's, you know, you can expect it. But to the degree that you you are you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. We have a blessed hope that we anticipate. He goes on, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And there's other passages. I like Second Timothy well, I don't like it, but <laughs> I like to use it. 
2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we can anticipate it. Another issue relating to the church, but kind of general, relating to all humans, is the issue of death. And if you're alive, it's eschatological to you because you're still alive, but all of us will experience death. And when it comes to the issue of death, there's all kinds of views. I don't want to go into detail on these, but Buddhism has its view, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, liberalism. They all have their different views. And we can summarize some of these views, and I've got a list of them. Some people believe that you just perish. This is kind of a materialistic view, that the soul just perishes and goes into non-existence. In fact, I think this is a Buddhist view as well, to some extent. The soul somehow just turns into nothingness, I guess. Certainly the body obviously decomposes, but that's an unbiblical view. In fact, all of these are unbiblical. Roman Catholicism believes in a purgatory after death, place of temporal suffering until you pay your debts of sin, and that's commonly taught today. The idea of soul sleep, I think, is not a biblical doctrine. The soul just lapses into a state of sleep or unconscious conscious existence. Now, they use those passages that refer to, to sleep as an image of death, but I think it's an image of death, mm. not a condition. So they believe that you're no longer conscious until you are resurrected, at least a Christian view of that. Similar to the soul perishing is this annihilation view, and particularly of the unsaved, annihilation of the unbeliever, those that have a hard time with eternal punishment, and some evangelicals, some well-known ones, the doctrine of annihilation. I I think John Stott, who is very sound, believes in this, and there's some others as well. That's the J.W. view, though. The what? Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah, I think so of unbelievers. A conditional exist a conditional immortality view. The unbeliever dies with without a soul or without immortality and ceases to exist. It's a form of annihilationism. There's an intermediate state and the passages that are mainly used are those passages in the Old Testament referring to Sheol, but there seems to be a change as a result of Christ's death and resurrection. In the church age, I don't see an intermediate state. In fact, I I think we go outside of time, and we go immediately to the rapture, if you will, as believers in this age, and likewise the unbeliever. And the biblical view is that we go into eternity. Time ceases to exist for the, the, the people that die. They go into eternity, either immediately to the judgment and eternal condemnation or into the next stage of what God is doing in terms of resurrected believers. So just some things to keep in mind in terms of death and eschatological concept. Another major event, the last major event of the church, and notice there are not very many, (laughs) apostasy and rapture essentially is the rapture of the church. Clearly eschatological, and I think most of you are familiar with it, but let's summarize some of the major elements of it. And I'll give you a little introduction. This is a doctrine that is denied by 
many in the church, mainly amillennialists, even postmillennialists, but I think it's an important doctrine for several reasons. They would say it's an obscure doctrine, and we would say, no, it's not an obscure doctrine. Jesus introduced it. It's referred to by Paul himself. In fact, when Paul is teaching the Thessalonians in First and Second Thessalonians, they are brand new believers, and he's talking about issues of eschatology and the rapture specifically. We have the central passage on the rapture in First Thessalonians. And these are baby Christians. So it's not an obscure doctrine. It's not one that should be avoided until more maturity arrives. He's talking to immature believers at Thessalonica. The implication is he had already talked about it. He's telling them, he's correcting misconceptions that they had concerning a prior teaching that seems to be dealing with the rapture. So it's not an obscure doctrine. In fact, it's put together with some other doctrines in the same context that are very significant, major doctrines in the same context. In First Thessalonians 1, kind of in the context, Thessalonians again, he's focusing in on the Holy Spirit. That's a major doctrine. Soteriology also is related in some of the contexts. And it's also important because it's one of the few events for the church, specifically for the church, unique to the church. One of the few eschatological events, the rapture. That by itself makes it important and worthy of study. Fourthly, it's in a context that encourages sanctification. So it seems to be an element that is important for our sanctification. And related to that, uh, it is where we put our hope. It, it's it's a, called a blessed hope in Titus. And it gives us a different perspective. So while we are in the process of suffering and being sanctified and even disciplined, we focus on this blessed hope because we know that everything that we're experiencing now has a purpose and a reason, and it's not only going to end, but it is going to have a payoff when uh, the Lord returns, and more specifically, when he raptures us out. So we endure whatever, and if we are martyred, we know that we're going to be raptured. We're going to be taken out. So it's an important doctrine, and there's probably other reasons as well. Those are the ones I've come up with. Characteristics of the rapture, and this kind of gets at the essence of it and also distinguishes and distinguishes it from the second coming. Number one, it distinguishes it from the second coming in that it's a mystery. And that's how it's described in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, as a mystery. Second coming is not a mystery. The rapture is a mystery. Second coming, there are many prophecies. Secondly, it's imminent. It's imminent. And what we mean by that is not preceded by any signs. Don't anticipate anything to precede the rapture. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he's describing the rapture, he describes it. We'll look at that passage. In fact, you might turn to that because I want to look at some of the things that it teaches Paul describes it in terms that he almost thought that he would see the rapture himself. So it's imminent. And also in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that gives a little bit of a, at least an implication of imminence. He says he encourages to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, that is Jesus, 
who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we just wait. There's no other event that we we wait for that transpire before we are delivered from the wrath to come. That puts it pre-tribulational, imminent. A.T. Pearson describes this doctrine of imminence in this way. He says, imminence is the combination of two conditions, certainty and uncertainty. By an imminent event, we mean one which is certain to occur at some time, that's the rapture, uncertain at what time. We don't have a date. We don't have a a specific time. I think that's a good description. So it's imminent. Thirdly, it is distinct. And let me illustrate the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. Rapture, I just said it's imminent. It's pre-tribulational. And I'm not going to give you those reasons. We looked at that when we were talking about different positions. I gave you a defense for a pre-trib rapture. It's secret. Saints are translated. The Lord comes in the air. It's veiled and invisible. We meet Christ in the air. Saints go to heaven. It's revealed in the New Testament only. And if you read a lot of the other writers on eschatology, you'll find that there's several other distinctions as well. These are probably the most prominent that I put on one slide there. Second coming, you'd have to say, is preceded by signs. And if it's preceded by signs, then you can anticipate these things taking place before the second coming. And there's an abundance of them. Probably the first one is the signing of a covenant. And if you know the signing of the covenant and you know the date of it, you can predict a date for the second coming. Because it's seven years after the signing of a covenant. Daniel makes that clear. You also have the revealing of the son of lawlessness that's described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So you have to have a revealing of Antichrist. Now, the unbelieving world won't understand that, but the believing world in that period of time, the saints of that period of time, will have enough information to identify Antichrist, particularly the Jews. So lots of signs. There'll be something in the middle of a seven-year period of time that takes place in the temple in Jerusalem. That's a sign. Nations rising against nations, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, judgments, all of those are signs that precede the second coming. The second coming is post-tribulational, not pre-tribulational. It's after the, after the tribulation of these days, Matthew 24, verse 29. It's very public. If you look at the descriptions, Revelation 19, uh, Matthew 24, 29 through 33 there. Very public, very evident, very visible. Saints are translated in the rapture. Israel is regathered at the second coming in order to enter the kingdom. Rapture takes place in the air. Jesus Christ sets foot on the earth. And Zechariah 14 specifically tells us the very spot, Mount of Olives. Rapture is veiled. The world will not know when it happens. They might have some indication that people have disappeared, but Antichrist will have an explanation. It's it's invisible, or the world will have it have an explanation. It's invisible. The second coming is with glory and great power, a great display, and every eye shall see him. It's not invisible. In the rapture, we meet Christ in the air, and at the second coming, Christ returns, and we return with Christ to earth. Saints to heaven in the rapture, 
saints during the tribulation remain for the kingdom. Rapture only revealed in the New Testament. In fact, it's called a mystery because it's not in the Old Testament. Second coming, both Old Testament and New Testament. So there you go. It's distinct. It's instantaneous. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, instantaneous. It's selective. And the John 14, this is the first prediction of the rapture. It's not totally clear, but if you put it together with the others... John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus predicts, in fact, verses two, verse 2, beginning verse 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is departing. This is in the upper room. He's going to, within hours, he's going to be crucified. He's going to prepare a place for the disciples. And if I go and prepare a place for you, for you disciples, for believers, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's rapture. We will meet him in the air. He's going to receive us to himself. That where I am, there you may be also. So we will be where he is after he departs. And it's selective. It's All of the passages pertain to believers. It's spectacular for the believer. It's it's invisible to the unbeliever, but it's spectacular. We have the descent of the Lord and a shout. Only believers will hear. We'll have the voice of an archangel that only believers will hear. We'll have a blast of a trumpet that only believers will hear. So it's spectacular for those that are part of it, but invisible to those that don't have a part. It's going to be transforming we're going to experience transformation. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. In other words, we're waiting without looking for signs. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. In other words, we will have resurrection bodies by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We will be rid of these sinful bodies. It's going to be transforming, no longer limited by the flesh or tempted by it. And it's illustrated. There are illustrations of it. God has given dramatic illustrations, even in the Old Testament, even though the rapture is not revealed there. We have examples of it. I think Enoch is the first one where he is taken up. He's raptured. Elijah was raptured. Enoch in Genesis 5.24. Elijah in 2 Kings 2. You might even consider Christ ascended. It's like a rapture. In the book of Acts, chapter 8.39, Philip is translated and moved supernaturally, interestingly. The two witnesses in the book of Revelation are going to be raptured in the middle of the tribulation. So it's illustrated. Now, the last one you can't look back at, but we can see from uh, prophetic scriptures in the future. First Thessalonians 4, we have different components of the rapture. We have a return. That's verse 16. Where do we leave off reading? Jim, we left, we skipped you. Why don't you read verse 16? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the 
The Lord himself will descend. There's the return. Now, the second coming, you could think of it as in two phases. The first phase, here's the return in terms of the first phase only, the rapture, because that's what he's going to describe. So we have a return, and there's the spectacular aspect with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. So we have return and resurrection, dead in Christ, Old Testament saints, those that have died, possibly Old Testament saints, but those specifically that have died in this age, in in the church age as well, people that have died already. That's what he's addressing here in verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now he's using that in a metaphorical way, those that have died. They were concerned about their relatives. Did they miss out? Because they anticipated, as Paul described it, this great event. Did they miss out on this event? About those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. In other words, don't worry about your relatives or your friends that have died, that are in Christ. They will rise first, verse 16. And verse 17, Sheila, why don't you read that one? We have rapture, we have the description. Four seventeen. Mm-hmm. Then we who are alive shall be caught up together, and thus we shall. There's rapture. We that remain, and notice what he says. We. He's. He's not saying that generation of believers two thousand years from now, mm-hmm. or more. But he frames it. We, and the we is continuous. Verse thirteen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, etc. Uh, Verse 14, if we believe, verse 15, for thus we say to you by the word of the Lord. And then now here he's talking about we in terms of we who remain alive shall be caught up together. That's where we get we get the word rapture from the Latin translation of the Greek word there. And there's going to be a reunion. We who are alive and remain are caught up together with them. And he's referring to those that he referred to in verse 16, the dead that are in Christ. So we will be reunited together with them. And this is in the clouds, not on earth, to meet the Lord in the air, not on the Mount of Olives. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And it also gives us reassurance, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. This is a comfort, comforting doctrine, comforting doctrine. And by the way, Paul may be, and there's a debate over this, but he may be alluding to the rapture when he's talking about a restrainer, using ours here as my alliterative tool here. But in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he's talking about until the restrainer is taken out, and it's possible that the rapture is in view in that the church with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is removed. We are the ones that are the salt of the earth. We are the ones that restrain evil. And when the restrainer is removed, the Holy Spirit indwelling the church in the rapture, then the tribulation has all its full effects. So those are the components of the rapture, from the central passage on the rapture. I've given you three passages already. I've given you the 
John 14, 1 through 3 passage. I've given you the 1 Thessalonians 1, 10 passage, which is probably rapture, and then 1 Thessalonians 4 passage. And it'll involve resurrection, and there's lots of passages that refer to resurrection of believers. And I would tie all of those passages, like 1 Corinthians 15, which very clearly ties it to the rapture. So you can include 1 Corinthians 15 as a rapture chapter. Jim. I just read somewhere that uh, there in that uh, second Thessalonians passage. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse... Three, where it says, let no one in any way deceive you, uh, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And that, that's word apostasy there, is, that's that word depart. Yes. And it's really talking about yes. the rapture, not apostasy. That's, that's a view, yes, absolutely. It's not, it's not crystal clear. It makes sense in context. Yeah. It's possible that it's a reference to the rapture, rather than, as it's translated, apostasy. Literally, it would be the departure. Very good. Yeah. Are you going to cover the day of the Lord? Uh, two, three. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we talk about the second coming. Because it's like it goes right on there in First Thessalonians 4, right into the Lord. Because mm-hmm. he's warning them not to, yeah. you know, not to, that it should overtake them. So it sounds like, we might still, I mean, it's a little confusing because it's going to be there. Yeah, the, I take the day of the Lord as kind of the package of when God intervenes in history to begin to bring things to consummation. And it, yeah, in some some contexts it refers to that tribulation period. In fact, most of the context, day of the Lord. The intervention of God is the day of the Lord. So resurrection is, an, is a very important aspect of it, and glorification. This is what we look forward to. This is when we are glorified. You can use Romans 8.30, And whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. In other words, salvation is a package that involves all the way from the beginning to an end, which whom he justified, these he also glorified. And in that context, it's stated in past tense as if it's already taken place. But it's a past tense grammatically with a with a future fulfillment. Or you can use Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, that's second coming, rapture, revealed in the rapture, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And will be revealed who we really are without sin. That's the essence of who we are when the Lord returns for us. And then we will return to earth with him in glorified bodies. We'll look ahead at that. So that's the church before the tribulation. Let's take a look at the church during the tribulation. And that tribulation is this seven-year period that we've looked at when we talked about Israel with two, three-and-a-half-year periods of time. And in church eschatology, we've looked apostasy, there's your surprise. Have you been there? Funny enough, no. I've traveled a lot around Brazil, but never been to the capital. Actually flew over it, but never really... Yeah, but you're familiar with this. Yes, that is the cathedral, yes. It's uh, pretty spectacular, I understand. I've never seen it. Yeah, I mean, we I've seen it in books and videos and whatnot. Never really seen it like, in right. person. But yeah, everybody says that it's... That, that's a 
I've studied a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, Oscar Niemeyer, who actually did, he's an amazing, amazing architect. Oh, yeah. Well, if you haven't picked up already, I'm using kind of churches yes, as my background yes, themes here. Yes. Church eschatology, apostasy, and very clearly rapture. And now within this period of time, the Bema, or judgment seat of Christ, is how it's translated, or judgment seat and of Christ is part of the phrase. That's referring to the church. That's eschatological. So really, there's only three distinct eschatological events so far. Bema, that's future. Let's talk a little bit about Christian judgment, because there's confusion here, and there's misunderstanding, and people don't quite understand what the Bema is. A lot of faulty views. The Bema does not determine whether we get to heaven. has nothing to do with heaven or hell. That's a misconception. There's no St. Peter at the pearly gates. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's not where God punishes Christians for sin after they're saved. Some people think that. This makes the cross inadequate and eventually will lead to legalism. Or some think that this future Christian judgment is where God judges unconfessed sin. So you better confess it all now. Otherwise, you might be judged for future. Yeah, so that's not the case. But we believe that all of the judgment that we deserve is paid in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. Paid in full. And... When translators translate the little word bema, transliterated B-E-M-E, I think it's a, when they translate it judgment seat and they use the word judgment, I think it kind of misguides our thinking a little bit. There is evaluation, you might say, but it has nothing to do with the concept of judgment, which we think, and I think properly in terms of the Bible, where it's a separating of evil. And it usually has eternal destiny involved. The Bema has nothing to do with that. Because we have, by grace, received redemption from any wrath. Jesus has paid the full penalty. And one verse that supports that, there's many of them. I could give you several of them, and you probably know them. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Present tense. And will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Basic principle. We receive Jesus Christ. We move from death to life. No longer experiencing condemnation. Doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. Because we do. But that is dealt with on the cross once for all. So it has nothing to do with past. the past. There's such a thing in the present. The Bible describes that as discipline. And some people mix this up as well. Hebrews 12, we can experience discipline. It's training. Judgment is separation. And there is a future that is described by the Bema that deals with rewards or loss above and beyond salvation and eternal life. Rewards or loss of rewards. And there's several clear passages that inform us concerning the Bema. And here it's transliterated, Bema. And there's an illustration at Corinth. 
in the first century, the bema could be any one of three things. Archaeologists identify that rock structure there as a judicial bema. In other words, judgment was carried out there. In other words, it was a place where a judge would stand before a defendant. Court was held, and the defendant was either acquitted or he was condemned. And it was before a judge, and he would sit on a platform, and the person would come before him, the evidence presented, and he would be either condemned or acquitted. That's a bema. The bema, that's more the seat of a judge or a judicial situation. The bema was also used of a podium where a speaker would stand. It was called a bema. And a political speech would have been given or public address or a theatrical performance from a podium. That was a bema. It was also used in the athletic Olympic Games for a platform where the winner of the event would stand on the platform and he would be crowned with a crown or a wreath to acknowledge him as the winner and he would be rewarded. It would be at the bema. And I think what Paul is doing, he's using the imagery that could include some elements of at least the first and the, the third there. And in some way, the Christian is going to stand before Jesus Christ and his competition is going to be evaluated. Or you might think of it in terms of his life by a judge is going to be evaluated. No condemnation but the possibility, like an athlete, of receiving a reward. Okay, you won the event. Not only do you have your name as the winner, but uh, here is a token of reward to acknowledge that you won the event. And I think that's what's in view in the bema. And there's the Greek word at the top there, bema. So we could describe it, the place, probably in the heavenlies, the time, I would put it, after the rapture, The judge is Jesus Christ himself. This is putting the passages together that describe the Bema. And the subjects are believers during the church age. Church age believers. And everything is always on the basis of grace. It's not that we have earned, or, and I want to emphasize this, it's not that we deserve these rewards. It's by grace. It is above and beyond what we deserve. That makes it grace. It's also out of the graciousness of God that he would want to reward us for something we should do because we owe everything to him. So on the basis of grace and the purpose of the Bema is to bestow rewards and you can include or loss a reward. And the main teaching on this is that the way we live today is important. So we we should encourage one another to live faithfully, not because we're going to lose our salvation, that's Arminian, or not to prove that we are genuine believers, that's Calvinistic. In other words, our works prove that we truly are regenerate. I think there is a truth to that, but that's not the reason that we need to motivate. We need to motivate... Because God wants to be even more gracious than bestowing eternal life and salvation. But he wants to reward us. Plus, the rewards are going to involve positions during the millennial kingdom. Read the context of some of the passages. And I'll give you some of those next week as we pretty much run out of time. And we won't get to all of that because I'd like to develop this a little further. 
just one passage that indicates this whole idea. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, he's talking, he's talking to the church at Colossae, believers. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. In other words, we have a spiritual perspective here. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. has nothing to do with salvation. There's an inheritance associated with the Christian walk. It is the Lord whom you serve. And that's just one passage. Yeah, let's save this for next week. I wanted to take a look at the central passage here which is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, and why don't we save that for next week. Helada, we'll leave the opening and closing prayer to your table. <laughs> Vivian opened us, so we'll have you close. Oh, goodness. What a responsibility. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Dear God, thank you so much for um, the day, for your majestic works in our lives. Father God, I just pray that um, you continue to ingrain the truth from the word in our hearts and your minds so that we can continue to be literal in whatever we learn from your word, Father, so that we can better live our lives and impact people's lives to you as well. And thank you so much for you know, the teachings learned here today and help us to um, continue to apply to our lives so that you may uh, take us to and from today, keep us safe, and um, help us to have a blessed rest of the day. Jesus, holy and precious name. Amen. Amen.